This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Christopher S. Penn. I've known him a long time. He's the co-founder of Trust Insights, a data analytics company focused on helping you make more money with your data. He's one of the co-founders of PodCamp. I've attended many PodCamps. I've even seen him speak at a PodCamp. He's also the co-host of the Marketing Over Coffee Marketing Podcast. And there's so much more to Christopher, but why I wanted to have this conversation with Chris is since about November of 2022, there there's been this zeitgeist of attention given to something called chat GPT. And I thought at some point here, I'm going to have to have a conversation about this on the show. And if you're unaware, chat GPT is a natural language processing tool that's driven by AI technology and allows you to have human like conversations and much more with that chatbot. And the language model can answer questions and assist you with different tasks like composing emails or writing code and creating things. And there's been mixed opinions and perspectives on how powerful or useful it is, what it can or can't do, what it should or shouldn't do, what we need to be talking about, thinking about as this type of technology enters into the workforce. And that's the conversation I'm having here with Chris. We talk about all those things as well as how to get the most out of it, what it can do now, what you could and should be using it for, factors to think about as you're moving forward with your use of it. And I'm excited. I've had some mixed but progressively better results with using it. I can find definitely some productivity ways to apply this, especially when it comes to getting started with projects loading it up with the proper prompts. And we talk about that too. We talk about prompt engineering, creating a great prompt for chat GPT and other tools like it to be able to get the most out of it. So whether you're a beginner and you know nothing about chat GPT, but you maybe heard that term thrown around or AI thrown around, or you're somebody who already has some familiarity, but you want to grow and deepen your understanding and add to your perspective on it, this is the conversation for you. So I'll just get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Christopher S. Penn. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Christopher S. Penn. Chris, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I admitted pre-recording, I'd been wanting to have you on for a long time, but I wasn't quite sure what the topic would be. I just knew I'm going to gush for a second. You're one of my revered minds when it comes to data and when it comes to especially marketing insight. And so I really enjoy having not just listened to you on Marketing Over Coffee for years and your newsletter and meeting you in person and hearing you speak, but I knew I had to have you on and I knew what topic to talk about when chat GPT showed up and people who frankly just have no idea what they're talking about started talking about it. And then <laughs> you were such a contrast to that. And so to kind of set up context here, which, hey, this is all about context, right? What I want to talk about is what it is 
and you know AI and or what ChatGPT is and what it's perceived as. We'll dive into some what it can do or what it can't do or what it should or shouldn't do. How are some ways that we can best use it? What are some ways that it's going to be used now versus in the near future and in, and then beyond and kind of just ultimately take a pulse? I think this might actually be somewhat of a recurring like check in with Chris on this topic every so often kind of thing, if you'd be welcome to that thought. So I guess one again, welcome. And I just got to say, like, start us off, set up some context. When you first saw ChatGPT show up, what made you pay attention maybe differently this time than before? So ChatGPT is the evolution of OpenAI's playground, right? We've been able to use the playground since GPT-2 to test our code and test our prompts and stuff like that. But ChatGPT is the first interface that is designed to be more novice friendly, more non-technically friendly. When you see the regular developer's playground, yeah, there's still a lot of you know, buttons and knobs. You're like, does anyone know what those buttons do? I mean, if you're a technical person, you're like, okay, I get this. This is what I use this for. But most people don't need that. Most people want a friendly interface. And that's what it is. I think it's important to clarify too, just a bit of, of table setting. Chat GPT is the web interface to a family of language models called the GPT family. And today, as of the day of this recording and things change all the time, there's three different models that are available. There's the legacy GPT 3.5, which is the version that the free users get. It's the slow version, right? There's GPT 3.5 Turbo, which is the, what the paid users get. That's very, very fast and very effective. And then there's the brand new GPT-4, which is the brand new model that has a lot more precision, a lot more reasoning and, and logic capabilities but is also fairly slow. Anytime we talk about a machine learning model or a language model, we are really just talking about a piece of software. It is software in the same way that Microsoft Word is a piece of software. The difference is that these language models, these pieces of software are made by machines, not by people. So it's, you know, there's, there's not a team of developers writing this model. It's a massive amount of computing power writing this software. And then when we use that software through an interface like ChatGPT, or we use it through API, if you're a developer, we are using that piece of software. But like I said, you'll hear the word model. That's really what we're saying was we're saying it's a piece of software. Okay, perfect. And then I know you mentioned it being like the interface. And I love that it actually says chat in the name because it's that like, well, that's the most easy way for us to, you know, we're not going down a, a page. Kind of like if you if you think of some people may be familiar with like cloud convert, where you upload a file and then you check a whole bunch of different boxes and you tweak, you know, different settings. And then you say output the file this way. And then you push a button. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about bypassing all that and just saying, I would like this, and it's all about how you ask it for what it can maybe give you, because it's a language model. Can you explain a little bit more about what a language model is? Sure. A language model, which is a piece of software, is essentially a gigantic database of probabilities, right? So when a company like OpenAI or Google or whoever is building the language model in question is building this thing, what they do is they ingest an enormous amount of text from all around the web in all kinds of different formats you know, software scripts and movie reviews and recipes and academic papers and, you know, whatever people are saying on Reddit and Twitter and et cetera. They ingest all this information and then they have very, very, very large compute facilities digest this down into a series of probabilities. 
I'll give you an example. If I say, and this is for the Americans in the audience, uh, if I say I pledge allegiance to the, what's the next logical word? 90-ish percent of the time, it's going to be flag, right? So there's a probability between the interactions in those words. What these models are is based on a 2017 paper about an architecture, a type of advanced AI called Transformers. Nothing to do with the 80s toys, which were awesome. But what Transformers do is they take a bunch of inputs, they establish the probabilities, and then they create a bunch of outputs. And we could talk you know, in, in more technical detail if you want, but there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of math involved. But essentially, when these companies build these things, they build these very, very large databases of probability. And then when you write a prompt, which is what you use to ask the software to do something, you are essentially invoking those probabilities as a form of language. I said on a recent episode of my newsletter that we're essentially using regular everyday language to write computer code, right? We are writing code when we are talking to one of these language models because coding is nothing more than giving instructions to a machine. It's just we're doing it in language that the everyday person can use as opposed to having to learn Python or C or Java or one of those things. So that's what a large language model is. It's a piece of software that's a huge database of probabilities. And then there's four main tasks that these things perform. There is generation, which is you give it a prompt, like write a blog post about content marketing, right? And it will spit out a probably a mediocre post at first until you learn how to do prompt engineering properly. There is summarization. Given this big pile of text, turn it into a smaller pile of text. There is rewriting. Given this pile of text, change the way the text operates. And then there is transformation. Given this type of text, transform it into something else. A really good example of this is you can give it some lyrics and have it write guitar tabs, right? So and, and if you're a guitar player, you can look at the output and go, huh, that's interesting. So it's, you're converting text into music. The models, these large language models are good at generation. They are great at summarization. They are great at rewriting. They are great at transformation because by the name transformer, that, that's what they're really designed to do is transform one thing into another thing. That's why if you've ever used one of these models you, and you you start off a very simplistic prompt, like you know, write a blog post about content marketing, you will get back mediocre text, right? It's, it, it's readable, it's legible, but it's it's not groundbreaking. Like it's going to say content marketing is the discipline of, you know, and, and so it's, it's very elementary to begin with. But that's what these things are. So in that summary, so you summarized right there for us <laughs> what it can do. I'm curious, are there things that people are trying to make it do or asking it to do that it really has no business doing, at least as of yet? That's a very muddy question because it all depends on the instructions you give it. There are ways, so particularly with the, for the language models that are run by corporations, there are limits, self-imposed limits that these companies have put on these things to avoid having people do things with them that you might not want them to do, right? Like devise a recipe for an improvised explosive. Right? <laughs> it's like, oh, do I really want you to do that? So there are definitely a series of tasks that it is prohibited from doing in basic prompts. There actually are ways to engineer around those rules, but we won't be discussing that on this podcast. There are things essentially trying to create stuff that doesn't exist, right? So for example, the GPT family of models, their knowledge base ends in September, 2021. So asking it you know, about say season three of a TV show that was produced after that time period, it has no knowledge of that. So it can't do that. And it will do what's called hallucinating, which is essentially just techie word for lying, right? So in earlier models, in the GPT-3 model, you could ask it a question like, who was the president of the United States in 1566? 
and it would hallucinate something like Christopher Columbus was the president, right? Because it has these word associations from its giant database of probabilities, but it does not have any knowledge. One of the most important things to remember about these large language models is they are not sentient. They are not self-aware. They cannot comprehend. They do not understand. They don't think. They are just databases of probability. So asking these things to do tasks that are true thinking tasks, they can't do. They have no agency of their own, right? Your dog has agency. When your dog's like, I'm hungry, and you, you get some kind of wanders around the house and follows you around. These machines do not have that kind of agency. If you don't prompt them, they just sit there. So where we're at right now with these is it's essentially a false claim to call them AI because it's not intelligent, artificial or otherwise. Is that true? It depends on how you define intelligence. Sure. <laughs> well, I would say that some of the ways that it's doing things is... Well, I'm not going to go down that road. I was going to say, I'm going to say it anyway. I I would say that some of the things that it can do is maybe better than some people that I know and what they can do. But that doesn't, again, that's not what we're talking about really here. So yeah, I think though that I I guess, well, how how do you define it? How do you define AI, I guess? And or is there a common definition that is used and are those different? Is yours and the common different? Uh, Not really. So artificial intelligence is essentially the art and science of getting computers to simulate tasks that human intelligence normally performs, right? So if you can hear the sound of my voice and it's meaningful, you're doing what's called language processing, right? You're listening to me talk. Part of your brain is turning that sound into words and those words have meaning, right? That's language processing. Natural language processing, which is a subdiscipline of AI, does exactly the same thing speech-to-text or text-to-speech APIs. Again, do those things. There's so many different fields in this umbrella term of AI that are simulating the capabilities of a human being. So that's sort of the, the general term. And it is a very broad umbrella, right? You have things like computer vision. Computer vision is a huge field unto itself of just trying to teach computers how to see, which you need for things like self-driving cars. There's so many different sub-disciplines that the AI term can be, you know, very unspecific at times. Okay. So there's still maybe some need for at some point a, a consensus on what that definition would be. But again, it's going to, like most things, people have varying definitions of what something means and that, and that's fine that that's the way it works. But um, I think that again, when the latest, well, not the latest, cause now chat GPT four is, is out as of, a week ago, something like that, as of this recording. But back in November, when it first kind of started to enter into the popular zeitgeist of, you would see tweets about it consistently and so forth. I think that at that point, a lot of the concern slash perspective slash excitement about it, wherever people found themselves on the spectrum of interest in this, it kind of went from, oh, this is just going to turn out crappy marketing copy, or this is just going to be something that people rely too heavily on. There's a lot of different instant takes, in other words. Now that we've had some time to kind of see what it can or can't do, and again, I think a lot of the strength of what it can or can't do, and I'm curious if you agree, is it really relies on that prompt you used a specific term, prompt engineering, 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 explain a little bit more about what that means and how that really kind of unlocks what it can or can't do at this point. Prompt engineering, like we said, is writing software using natural language, right? Think of it almost like a creative brief, right? Would you ever tell a graphic artist, oh, uh, just do a picture of a dog. They'd be like, okay, sure. You want to be a little more specific there, buddy? Whereas you might say, 
you're going to do a painting of a dog. It's specifically going to be a Newfoundland the, with a black coat, blue eyes. The dog's going to be in a sitting position with its tail wagging uh, against a backdrop of a green couch with a, you know, a blue ball. And you, you go on and on and on. The more you describe, the more clear that your graphic designer friend would be like, okay, I get what you're trying to have me do. The same is true of prompt engineering. Remember, a large language model is nothing more than a giant database of probabilities. So when you create a prompt, if you just say write a blog post about content marketing, that gives it very little to work with, right? It has some keywords like content marketing. It's like, okay, well, what probabilities are associated with the phrase content marketing in this massive language database and then synthesize something that is sort of a, a average, a mathematical average of all those terms into language. And you're going to get a pretty average blog post. If you wrote a prompt that said, you will act as a content marketer, you have experience and expertise in content marketing, SEO, SEM, search engine optimization, long form content, technical content, white papers, et cetera, podcasts, podcasting transcripts. Your first task will be to create a blog post about content marketing, cover the following five points. One, the emergence of generative AI. Two, voice search. Three, hybrid online, offline. Four, the rise of virtual reality and augmented reality. Five, the impact of podcasting in hybrid environments. Write the blog post. There's a lot of stuff in that prompt, a lot of words that the probability database can latch on to, narrow things down, put guardrails on what it generates, and you're going to get a much better piece of content out of it because you've been so much more specific with it. Again, that's, that's how these language models work. One of my favorite things to do with large language models is transformative, is, is rewrites, because I have ideas, I have words, I have phrases unique to my voice. I want these machines to work with me, but not to dilute my voice down to something that's generic. So what I will do is I'll get out my phone, I'll turn on the voice memos app, I will just foam at the mouth for 10 minutes or so, right? And then I'll have an AI transcribe that into raw text. And we all know what raw text looks like. It's messy. There's a lot of uh and um and like that extra stuff. And then I, we feed that transcript into a large language model like GPT-4 and say, rewrite this as an article with proper grammar and spelling. And what you get out of it is still me, still my words, still my voice, but coherent in a, you know, a more readable format. That's kind of how these tools can really be used to their best effect is, is not just trying to come up with a short generic prompt, but coming up with rich prompts or just raw materials and having them refine the, the raw materials. You were mentioning the whole idea of, you know, asking an artist to draw a dog. I think one of the other aspects here that we've seen a lot of surging in interest is and, and posts on social is all the different, well, here's my avatar as if I'm a Viking or here's my avatar as if I'm a, what's your take on that? And how is that related to this conversation? That's not language, that's visual. What's the difference? It's a different model architecture. So we see images or video now being generated. That is a model, an architecture called diffusers. So diffusers have a very different set of functionality for how they create their imagery, but it's still probability based, right? It's, you know, if this color pixel is next to this color pixel, often the probability of it being this is this. They are, however, bound to a language model. And those language models are very typically trained on image data sets that have captions, right? So that's why when you're using something like Stable Diffusion or Dolly 2 or any of the image generators, you can say, paint a picture of a dog and a tutu on a skateboard in the style of Vincent van Gogh. 
that language model then informs the diffuser which data sets to pull from based on the captions that you know it has ingested and that's how it generates its crazy outputs there is obviously a tremendous amount of interest in what these tools can do they're good at some things they're bad at other things you will probably have noticed they're not real good at people right you get some very very distorted looking human beings in the vanilla models there are more advanced versions that can try to correct for that but they're not nearly as far along as, say, you know, more traditional AI-based rendering, like what we saw with Unreal and Unreal Engine 5.2 this week at the Game Developers Conference with their MetaHuman software, where you're creating hyper-realistic virtual people. It's like, okay, this is bordering on creepy now. <laughs> One of the things that uh, I, I couldn't help but, as you were talking about, you know, you are a this in your prompt engineering that you were feeding it, you were telling it, you know, you are this and your motivation is this, and this is what I want you to do. It's almost like you're directing a method actor in a way, right? It feels like that, at least as I hear what you're saying to it. That's absolutely right. When you look at the technical underpinnings of chat GPT, the web interface, you will actually see that prompts are broken up into three different pieces. It's called role user assistant. The role part is that you will act as a, right? It tells the, the machine what role you are going to play. There's the user part, which is the directions. And then there's assistant part, which is where the assistant spits out stuff or you feed its previous output into that. And so when we look at the architecture of the technology behind the scenes, we see pretty clearly how to best use these tools. So having that role portion of a prompt tells the machine what it's going to be doing. And again, in some ways, you know, for folks who are a little older, it's like early days of SEO when you just come up with a keyword list because that's what it's doing. It's looking at language and saying what language in this, is in this role statement, content marketing, SEO, SEM. Okay, well, what do I know about these things? It goes and gathers the ingredients from its probability database. And then once it has those ingredients, you have the user portion, which is you'll write a blog post about this thing and say, okay, well, I have these ingredients. Let me assemble this into something coherent. That style of prompt aligns with the architecture of the system, which is why it works so well. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people, or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I know one of the things that has been debated a little bit here as this has gotten more attention is the idea of, especially in this kind of context of massive layoffs from tech companies, is this idea of tools like this replacing people. What are your thoughts on that? It will, but not in the way people think. People think like, oh, I'm going to come to work one day and a robot's going to be sitting at my desk. Like, no, that's not how that works. Think about your work day. Think about all the tasks in your work day. Maybe for simplicity's sake, let's say you have eight different one-hour tasks. You go to meetings, you do some writing, you know, you know, and so on and so forth. You respond to your emails, you watch Snapchat or TikTok and you fall, you know, losing a half hour of your day, whatever. Let's say there's 50 people in your department. And they all have similar things. You know, maybe it's a content marketing team, you know, writing blog posts, writing this, that, and that. AI replaces tasks, not jobs, because a job is a collection of a bunch of different tasks. So maybe you do two hours of writing a day, and maybe that, you know, in, in this other department of, of people, that's the average. Well, if you can shorten that time from two hours to half an hour using tools like GPT-3 or GPT-3.5 or GPT-4 or the implementations now in chat GPT or Microsoft Bing or Google Bard or any of the gazillion tools that are popping up now, you suddenly have an hour and a half a day free. Now, in a progressive company, a progressive company is going to say, great, you've reduced the time you're spending on work that's not best suited for people. Let's get you doing work that is best suited for human beings, right? Relationship management and so on and so forth. And you know, you become a more competent practitioner. In a regressive company, in a more conservative company, they're going to say, well, there's an hour and a half I can save there. There's an hour and a half I can save there. They're going to add all these up. And guess what? Our 50-person department now can be a 40-person department. I'm going to fire 10 people because we don't need them anymore. And the more that AI can do individual tasks, the more time it will save, the more in a progressive company you will have redeployment of your human resources. And in a more conservative, regressive company, the more people you're just going to fire because you don't need them anymore. So AI absolutely will cost jobs. But it's not because a Terminator is going to be sitting next to you in the cubicles, right? It's just because the amount of time you spend doing these tasks will shrink and companies that are more profit and cost focused are going to say, well, great, then we can do with fewer people. I can't help but equate that with personal experience where I've been the guy in the cubicle who was able to do the same stuff that everybody else was doing much faster so then I still had all this free time and it's like, well, where does, you know, the, do I then just sit there and twiddle my thumbs or do I sit and scroll Facebook and read blogs and, you know, misuse the time or, you know, play on my phone, whatever. It really comes down to, well, how can you deliver more? Uh, you know, it comes out of relationship management to your own with your boss at that point. It does. And there will be new things that come out of this that, you know, for example, you're Prompt engineering is software development, right? You're writing code. The process of code management in most companies is a pretty formalized process. You have code repositories, check-ins, check-outs. You have a software development lifecycle. You have intellectual property protection of that code. 
there will be a period of time when it's going to be kind of the Wild West and more progressive-minded folks should be looking around and saying, well, let's get ahead of this. Let's set up some processes so we have a prompt library in our company, right? You see a whole bunch of folks right now, you know, selling their prompt ebook or whatever. I'm like, that's great. You're giving away software, which I, is fine. You know, if you want to open source your software, if you're doing that for a company, you might want to check with your legal department first because you're essentially giving away software that code that your company wrote. And for all these organizations, they need to be thinking about, well, do we need to put in some kinds of processes and constraints on what employees can share? Like if you come up with this great prompt to process meeting notes out of transcripts at your company, that's valuable intellectual property to the company, right? That maybe not be something the company just wants to give away because you posted your 50 favorite prompts on Facebook. Well, guess what? That's subject to your employee agreement, right? And, and what terms you've agreed to. So there will be opportunities for people to manage how prompts work and the intellectual property, the licensing around them that no one's really thinking about yet, but they will have to think about very, very soon. Sounds like prompt engineers that up and coming, you know, course coming out at some point here in, in college and universities even. Maybe. So there's two aspects on that. First, with tools like, you know, Microsoft Copilot, which was announced last week, uh, where you see this large language model integrated into every aspect of Microsoft Office. You know, the, the joke is it's clippy, but useful this time around. Things like saying, generate a 10 slide PowerPoint presentation from this, you know, this document. That's some pretty cool stuff. But it also means that everyone is a developer now. You know, the moment this goes live in Microsoft Office, everyone who uses Office is a developer. It's not just, you know, certain folks. You may have interesting prompts being developed by like your janitors, like as they're trying to put their time in Excel, they may decide to use a large language model to do the inputs instead. We see this with HubSpot. Dharmesh Shah created ChatSpot, which is the GPT integration to the HubSpot CRM. And you can do things like, you know, move Eric Fisher to um, an opportunity with a deal size of $50,000, close dates October 31. And you just type that paragraph and boom, and it does all the button pushing. That basically turns your salesperson into a software developer for developing these prompts. So yes, and, and there are already people selling their chat GPT course, you know, whatever, which, you know, props to their agility. But there's a lot of bigger picture concerns that people should be thinking about that go beyond, you know, a bucket of prompts. The second aspect is that when you find something that works really well, there are ways to interface with the GPT models via an API. So you would write additional software in a formal software development language like C or Java or R or Python that would then let you scale the work you do beyond what a human being can do, right? Because copying and pasting the same thing 900 times is probably not a great use of your time, even if the machine is writing really cool stuff. If you were to give one of these tools your entire SEO keyword list and say, okay, well, write me 16,000 blog posts on this. If you have a prompt that works really well, then you could send all 16,000 to the system all at once and get your 16,000 pieces of content back via API. This is, again, is why prompts are so valuable. Once you get it right, you can turn it into a template and feed it to the machines at scale. Now you've basically taken something that maybe your admin developed and you've turned it into enterprise software, right? That's kind of a big deal. Again, that's something that people are not thinking enough about. You gave some examples of prompts earlier that were, you know, better, better is a subjective word, more intelligent, closer to getting us to get the information out of it that we're looking for. What would you say? Again, there's a lot of people who have jumped in and said, I tried it. It didn't really, it, it kind of gave me generic data and that's them 
say, hey, draw me a picture of a dog. That's them doing that, like you said in your example earlier. Then you gave the other example of, well, I'm looking for this and this, and you're a this. Give us kind of the baseline, like if you're going to attempt to use this properly, what are some of the baseline like factors or components, better word, of a proper prompt to make sure you're at least getting something decent? It depends on the language model and its architecture. The one that most people are using are the GPT series from OpenAI within the context of sort of the chat architecture. That is, again, role user assistance. So your prompt should have that role statement of here's who you are, who you're going to pretend to be. Your user statement is here's what you're going to do. And then the assistant part is the, the machine's portion to actually do the thing. So a good prompt will have a good role statement that will be detailed with the right language that will give guardrails for it to start pulling stuff out of this database and also excluding things from it based on the role statement. And then your user task statement is more refined. It's essentially the piece of code that says it should do this, it should not do this, it should do this, it should not do this, it should include this, it should exclude this, and so on and so forth. So a really good prompt includes the things you want, excludes the things that you don't want, specifies format, specifies output, and then again, it's very, very detailed. People think, you know, I'm going to write a, a, a one paragraph prompt. I have prompts that are a page and a half long of text, very explicit instructions, because I want it to do very specific things. And the only way to control it is to specify those requirements when you are calling, you're, you're essentially handing the software to a machine. And the results you're getting are going to be far superior to, again, write me a blog post about SEO, content marketing, and something else. It's so generic. You've kind of prompted it to say, you are a this. This is all the components mm -hmm. I want to have compiled. Here are all the key phrases, touch words that I want you to start to pull from and connect the dots, you know, almost in a mind map kind of a way and pull from before you then give me. And then you even give more of a specific specificity to the actual request. So that's why, I mean, I think people are thinking when they say prompt, oh yeah, I prompted you. I asked you a question. No, a prompt is a full, like almost three different component thing. You are this and here's all the information. And now I want you to do this. And it, I, I'm amazed at like how much better as I've started to like, because again, I was one of those early people who had jumped in and said, yeah, I don't know about this. And then as I've seen people do different things and, and give different examples, I've started to see, oh, there is something here, especially to maybe templatize the first two parts of it, but then ask it what you're asking of it in the end of the prompt to be something completely different, but still get something that's fairly comprehensive and useful. Yep. I was talking to a music student the other day whose professor was railing about you know, how chat GPT is useless. It can never do you know any of the, of the things that a real person can do and so forth. And, and this, this guy professionally will write music reviews and concert reviews and stuff uh, you know, outside of work. And I said, okay, let's see what he did. So he explained you know, his two sentence prompt. I'm like, of course you got something generic. So I wrote a prompt and I sent back the results, just the results without the prompt. Still 100% machine generated, but the prompt was six paragraphs of data and the review was spectacular. He looked at it and went, oh, I'm like, yeah, if you learn how to use the tools, they will exceed your capabilities as an individual human because it is the sum of the publicly available text that it was fed on, right? It has more aggregate knowledge than any one human being can ever carry around in their head. So if you are specific and clear, you know, I said, 
key points to cover. You know, this musician does modern interpretations of classical music. The performed music was technically correct and skillfully played. The concert was sold out. You know, fans who would enjoy a more modern sound of classical music would love his music and so on. And there's a whole bunch of this. And it wrote a great review of the concert. And th- this professor was like, uh, maybe this thing is going to take my job. Well, no, it's not going to take your job, but it is capable of creating. And again, remember, these are transformer models. So the more text that goes in, the more it has to work with them, the more easily it can transform it into something that is more satisfying on the opposite side. I'm curious. One of the concerns that I've heard is that people are going to rely on this too heavily as a tool. And I think, do you rely on your cell phone too much? Do you rely on, you know, any tool can be relied on too much and replaced and used in, in a, and mismanaged. I think what I'm getting at here is that I think that people that will rely on it too heavily are going to be the lazy users of it. They will want to use it as like shortcuts instead of really using it for what it's most worth. What are your thoughts on this? How many civilians under 30 can use a paper map? Obviously, if you've been in the military, you were required to learn how to do navigation with paper maps. How many civilians under the age of 30 can successfully use a paper map? And how many people just rely on the AI doing mapping with your phone? How many people remember stuff like phone numbers, right? Again, people under 30 don't generally remember phone numbers because they have contacts. It's mental shortcuts. Where are you going to see this family of tools make a huge difference is with the integrations. So last week, Microsoft Visual Studio Code integrated a chat GPT plugin. So now you can, in your coding environment, select a bunch of code, right click on it and say, optimize my code or find bugs or add documentation or complete this code. I have saved on some projects 90% of the development time because I know what I want. I'm very clear in my instructions. It writes the code and it gets the code like 95% correct. It still doesn't run because the code has to be 100% correct to run, but I can fix the last 5% faster than I can write the 95%. Does that make me lazy? No, it makes me smart because this is a task that is repetitive that a machine can do. And the value that I bring as a person is giving it the instructions. Here's what I want you to create. The same is true of content marketing, the same is true of blogging, the same is true of writing emails or any of the things, the applications that there are for this tool. Is it smart to do something manually when an automated tool exists that can do it as well or better than you? No, it is not. It is wasteful. It is wasteful of the one resource that you cannot buy, which is time. If you can get your work done in half the time with one of these tools, you have just recovered that time. Now, what you do with it is up to you but you have recovered that time through the use of tools. Will it change the way we work? Yes, 100%. It will dramatically change the way we work. Will it disrupt things like education, you know, writing term papers? Yes, it will. So, so the question we have to ask there is, what is the value of a term paper if a machine can do it better than you? Does it actually teach anything? The answer is maybe the research process and the thinking process to assemble a coherent argument is the value. The actual writing of the words together maybe less so. And so how do you teach that to people when the tool is something that is now antiquated? This is something that in every profession, we are going to have to do a lot of thinking about and a lot of considering to say, what is the value that a human being adds here? It is typically creativity. It is typically nonlinear inspired thinking. It is not typically pushing buttons, right? (laughs) Machines can push buttons better than we can. And so as we think about adopting this technology, we have to think about where do we add value and where is something just a waste of our time? 
right? Writing a status report or writing up meeting notes from a meeting. That is not a good use of our time at all. Does that mean that there will be entire tranches of people who have substantial numbers of tasks replaced or reduced? Yes, it does. And we have to figure out what to do with those people. Not to get too political here, but the way these tools are evolving as fast as they are evolving, planet-wide in every country, we need to be having very serious discussions about universal basic income. Because without it, you're going to have a lot of the lowest tier of jobs, you know, the entry-level jobs and things, 90% of the tasks are replaced because you don't need, you know, I used to work at a PR firm and the account coordinator on some teams was copying and pasting data from Google results into a spreadsheet eight hours a day. I'm like, how have you not clawed your own eyeballs out of your head with, you know, with this job? That is not a job for a human being. Writing a boring as crap press release, right? Uh, you know, which is what an account executive would do. That is not a job that a human being needs to do because nobody reads them anyway. You know, you have to do them because a the client says, so just have a machine do that. But then do you need 10 account executives on a PR account? No, you probably need two, right? So what are we going to do with those other eight people? An answer is universal basic income because money is fictional anyway. <laughs> you know, it is, it is the true faith-based <laughs> thing because there's literally nothing backing up the value of money except that we, we think it has value. But we need to tackle that as a planet, as a civilization, because these tools are going to move faster than we can. And we, if we don't get ahead of that, we'll have a large number of people who are unemployed who are traditionally not the people we think of who are unemployed, right? White collar workers, large numbers of, of those entry level and, and lower skilled jobs are going to go away. Two last questions here. I know we mentioned that the database or you know its knowledge base is capped at a certain point in time. How does that affect accuracy? Well, so my answer has changed in the last 24 hours because OpenAI said ChatGPT will have plugins. And the way to think about this is it will have essentially an app store that allows it to connect to the live internet and bring in data from the outside, modern, you know, up-to-date data. That is a very interesting development for people to be able to bring in outside data sources, like connecting it to your QuickBooks account so that you can have it summarize your finances, connecting it to the web so that you can you can have it summarize whatever conspiracy theories you believe in. Uh, you know, <laughs> take your pick. The accuracy of the data is contingent upon how the model is trained, right? And so the most recent version of OpenAI software, the GPT-4 model, went through a ton of training, has 570 billion parameters, something crazy like that, which is essentially just the number of probabilities that it has in training, which is 10x what the previous model was. What we're seeing is now the models are being integrated with live data streams, like with Microsoft Bing's integration, where Bing does its what it usually does as a search engine. It crawls the best results by its own retrieve and rank algorithm, and then it passes the results into a GPT model to turn it into text. So it is still linguistically correct, it is still you know, with the, the, the quality you expect it to be, but it is based on data coming from an outside system. So we now have to be thoughtful of when we use these tools, particularly for connecting it to outside data, what is the quality of the outside data that we are asking it to summarize or rewrite or extrapolate from? Because again, I guess with all things computing, garbage in, garbage out. Okay, last question. Obviously, you're staying on top of this constantly. Where can people go to continue to follow you as you're kind of treading through this path of deciphering and decoding and ingesting all the news about this? Where can people follow you, learn more about what you're doing, and stay on board with this and updated? So 
two places. My company, TrustInsights.ai. We publish all sorts of stuff all the time. Like everybody in the marketing field, you know, it's been the chat GPT show for like the last couple of months in terms of our podcast and blog. Because again, it's, it's what's on everyone's mind and we're answering questions. And then personally, you can find me at ChristopherSPen.com. Those two places, you'll find all the social accounts, all these other things from there. But those are the two places to go. Awesome. Chris, it's been great talking with you. Glad to see you again. Yeah, we're going to have to keep talking about this. I, I, we're going to have to have like a, a quarterly or every six month like, oh, yeah, let's check in with Chris on the state of... AI and ChatGPT, and let's see where we're at. And then I'll use ChatGPT to summarize our previous <laughs> podcast episode into a paragraph, and I'll read that at the top. Now, where are we? So, Chris, it's been great talking with you. Thanks so much for this. Thank you for having me. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Christopher S. Penn. I will link up to everything that he does and talks about in the podcast show notes. You can find those quickly and easily at beyondthetodolist.com. I hope that this was enlightening for you. Again, I don't know where you're coming into the conversation, what you were familiar with already, but I hope that at the end here, you've not just had some thought-provoking conversation, some education, and even some nudging to try it out and engineer some prompts, but that you are thinking and forward-thinking about how to use this, or at least how to have a perspective on others using it for you, with you, etc. moving forward, because I don't think these tools are going to go away. In fact, they're going to be in integrated into other things you are already using right now. So if you found this conversation helpful, educational, thought-provoking, interesting, any of those things, would you do me the favor of sharing it with somebody that you know needs to hear it? Click that share button in your podcast player app of choice. Let somebody else know that you appreciated this and let Chris know too. Again, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you again for listening. And I will see you next episode.